Hey folks, this is How to Grow a Whole Family Part 7 and I want to talk conflict and how we solve it. Because we humans have a conflict problem, don't we? We are an incredibly violent species. We're not quite as bad as black widows. We're not at the top of the list of the most violent animals towards each other, which would be the meerkats, but we're nowhere near the bottom of the list either. In fact, 60% of mammals don't kill each other at all. So would you agree with me that it's a little embarrassing that we've invented self-driving cars and robots to sweep our floors using electricity from nuclear fission reactors, but we still kill each other more often than porcupines do. Like we're a little better than we were in medieval Europe, at which point killings made up 12% of all human deaths, but still, if you live in Los Cabos, Mexico, or St. Louis, Missouri, that stat hasn't really changed much. And all you need to do is take a look at your social media feed to figure out that we've still got some work to do on conflict, and I'm a little ashamed and think that it's time in history that we do something about it. Since we eradicated polio, now maybe we can move to working on not flipping off the guy that cuts us off on the freeway or losing it when my wife wants to watch Dancing with a stars during a playoff game, right? My wife, by the way, prefers football, just saying. Um, this is actually a simple, not easy, but solvable problem, and I think we'd be dumb to say something like, well, humans will just be humans. We spend $1.7 worldwide on the military, and I think this is stupid. It's time we became human by letting our cerebral cortex take over, and it starts with ourselves and it starts in our families and what ha what starts there has ripple effects into the world so I want to talk conflict in families and on a personal level I want to give you some guidelines that are going to work for any conflict anytime whether that's between two other people or between you and someone else because I'm assuming you're a person too but I want to start here with the opposite of conflict falling in love here's what we now know we don't just fall in love with people randomly there are things we do and choices we make to make that happen or allow it to happen but you already knew that right you're only gonna fall in love with people that you meet or have actual interactions with or swipe right to or whatever people who geographically are close to you speak the same language to you you're gonna choose to fall in love with certain ones of those but there was a psychologist named Arthur Aaron that took it a step further and he conducted what's now a famous study that you can get virtually any two people to fall in love with each other just by having them answer a list of 36 questions together honestly which is kind of cool but don't go on your next blind date and just whip out the sheet of paper with questions on it because it takes a couple of hours and uh, it has to have two willing participants and I'm pretty sure your blind date has not agreed to be vulnerable and honest to a complete stranger but the conclusion of the experiment was that vulnerability fosters closeness. And so the study uh, kind of found out this. They said one key pattern associated with the development of a close relationship among peers is sustained, escalating, reciprocal, personal self-disclosure. And it sounds complex, but it's actually really simple. Uh, the problem with, the, with life in our world is that the pace usually doesn't allow enough margin for us to have sustained, escalating, reciprocal, personal self-disclosure. We're too busy, so we shortcut. But I want you to think about what this means. If you bother to know someone's story deeply, you will naturally and organically grow to like them. If you see beneath the surface with clear eyes and get into their story, you'll love them but think about what else this means it, it also means you can you can fall in in love with virtually anyone it means that your brain is wired to be hacked and it can and will be willing to set aside or forgive virtually any undesirable characteristic or flaw or past mistakes something someone has done 
if they just follow the steps to hack your brain. So your brain is kind of like this big bouncer keeping everybody else out of the party. But if somebody just smooth talks and says the right things to it, you're going to be like, yeah, no, I'll let you. Come on in. I forgive you. I love you. Let's be BFFs. You are hackable. And so is everyone else. And I would argue that this is actually a great thing that makes us great. Maybe it was a mutation or a set of mutations that enabled us to be so social in the first place. This is the secret hack that's going to get the bouncer to let you through. And it involves sustained, escalating, reciprocal personal self-disclosure. And really, this is call a spade a spade. It's all about getting someone to like you or like you again once you have had a riff uh, with them. Because conflict is when you have fallen out of like with somebody. Uh, it sounds a little complicated, but it's not at all, actually. I'm going to simplify it. I'm going to give you two steps that has helped me sort out hundreds of conflicts, and they're doable, and they work without fail if you're willing to do the work because this is how we are wired. So over the past 10 years in public schools, I've had to daily sort out hundreds if not thousands of conflicts and then we had fostered and adopted a couple of children and through that we had to do lots of trainings and therapy and one of them has a disorganized attachment style and through all of this I begin to see more clearly what conflict was actually about and what it's made out of and we were doing these de-escalation trainings and working on all of our kids and then uh, it, it bled on into my schoolwork and it bled over into my marriage and it has forever changed the trajectory of my family in a positive way with two simple steps. They work on me, they work on everybody. In fact, we're so shallow that I actually came up with a chart that I shared with my kids in my room to help them get out of trouble with their teachers, which is just a two-way conflict between them and their teachers, including myself. They can hack their teachers' brains, they can hack mine, and I don't care because ultimately this hack isn't really a shortcut. It's just the shortest route to the destination we need to go anyways and if we'll take it we can avoid the unnecessary long route of homicides and social media rants along the way okay so two steps to solving any conflict you probably want me to get to the steps right well here they are there's two of them but you have to keep listening after I say them because we need to actually discuss what I mean by these two steps and it would be a really short podcast episode okay are you ready of course you're ready here we go number one identify a feeling that they're feeling identify a feeling number two meet them there that's it. Podcast is it. Uh, it's over. Okay, so let me break them down for you. Basically, find out where they are on an emotional map, get your GPS out, and then go there with them. That's human relationships and conflict resolution all in a nutshell. So let me expound on step one and why. Identify a feeling. Why? Because all conflict is emotional at its core. That's what makes conflict conflict. Conflict actually becomes a, a conflict or a problem whenever we attempt to explain it in a logical way in order to keep a hold on our power or rationalize it as logical rather than recognize the emotions involved because conflict is emotional. You are not going to solve it logically by explanations. Now, disagreement can be logical. You and I might disagree on a complex math equation and we can calmly talk it through without anyone getting upset. Not a problem with anyone I've met. Two meteorologists can disagree about a weather forecast. Not a conflict until one of them calls the other one an idiot and then it becomes a conflict. So you may disagree with your spouse about whether or not Christmas music can be played before Thanksgiving. God help us. Not a conflict until someone gets upset, which might be me just save the music but it becomes a conflict whenever someone gets 
emotionally and you will not solve it logically by your explanations has anyone seen Facebook uh, so if you think that you're being upset for a logical reason then you are letting your emotions have a free pass to own you. Men, if you say, come on, I don't have feelings, I eat those for breakfast, you are allowing them to own you because being upset itself has no neurological connection to logic. So if you insist on like, no, 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 I'm upset for a logical reason, you sound dumb like you know the answer. You, you are posturing to protect your emotions. In fact, you sound as dumb as a football player 20 years ago who would insist that they wouldn't get a concussion because they were tough, which has zero to do with the fact that you have this bruisable, gelatinous, three-pound ball of neurons in your head. Science says otherwise. You have a brain. It can get injured when you pound it over and over again hundreds of times throughout your life. It's not tough. It's damaging your head, even though it does feel good to knock heads with other guys sometimes. Same thing with your emotions. You can swear that you're the most manly man in the world and the only feelings you have are hungry and horny, but if that's your take, you are just letting your emotions control you because you refuse to admit the places you don't want to control. We have a limbic system. It's the seat of our emotions, and it's where conflict is born. Now, uh, you disagree with someone, and it triggers an emotion somebody does call you an idiot your cerebral cortex perceives a threat and your emotional memory your limbic system produces a feeling of fear it switches on your amygdala it produces fight or flight sensations and we kick into a process of escalation at which the point the the cerebral upper thinking brain begins to shut down and we actually physically become less logical and we yell out obscenities and raise our middle finger or we go hide in the closet we get offensive or defensive this is conflict. And studies have shown us that intellectual threats are processed the same way as physical threats, which is interesting. So you feel the same way when you see the president's tweets as your thousandth great-grandfather felt and he saw the face of a saber-toothed tiger, not because it's the threat of an orange-haired creature growling incomprehensibly, that was funny, but because a threat is a threat and it turns on our fight-and-flight system in the same way. So Christmas music before Thanksgiving or the Alabama-Auburn game, or the border wall, all begin to cause logic to break down because they are personal to us in the threat. So let's do a test. I borrowed this from the Oatmeal Who Stole It From You're Not So Smart podcast, just uh, to be clear on that. So I'll give you some new information. This is, this is pretty good, I think. Uh, George Washington, <clears throat> first president, lost most of his teeth in his 20s which makes me feel proud to have mine. You, you may have uh, heard before that he has wooden dentures, they had wooden dentures, but he didn't. We recently analyzed them in 2005. The National Museum of Dentistry in Baltimore found out that they're actually made up of gold, lead, hippopotamus, ivory, horse, and donkey teeth, right? I, I bet you didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> so do you believe me? How, how do you feel about that? I think it's kind of funny, right? I mean, the pioneer of the Western world crossing the Delaware, donkey teeth, hee-haw. Now, do you believe me when I tell you that fact? Do you need to go research it? Do you want to argue with me? Do you feel any need to prove me wrong? I'm guessing that maybe the next time you're at a cocktail party and they start talking about the composition of Washington's dentures, as they do, you're going to be like so proud of yourself and you're going to drop that whole like, oh, you know, actually you had donkey teeth, right? Because there's no better way to win over the ladies, right? Let me give you a second fact. Washington had also, he had nine teeth that were implanted 
that were pulled from slaves. He wore the teeth of African Americans who may have been alive at the time. How does that make you feel? And, and, and let's say you're a progressive white person or especially an African American who already kind of had lingering doubts about the moral purity of all of the founding fathers. You may feel this rush of support and excitement to know this new fact like, oh, yeah, see, I knew Washington. He was one of those guys. Like somebody just put more ammo in your belt and you will probably rush to want to quote that without ever fact-checking me or finding out through any research whether or not I'm correct or what the context was. I'm going to guess that some of you would do that. And I'm going to guess that others who are conservative, white, patriotic, Washington lovers would not quote that at a party. You are probably feeling tempted at some level on, some, on, the, on the inside to scramble for an explanation or a defense of Washington's character, especially if you think that I'm your enemy and I'm attacking him. You probably want to do some research on it, right? Some people call this the backfire effect because if you're trying to use logic and history on your opponent, you're totally missing the point. If somebody accuses you and then they throw out this little Washington's teeth factoid or whatever, you're just going to do research and you're going to search and search to find something that disagrees with them to solidify your position. Both sides do this because our positions are emotional, not logical. They have to do with human connection at their core. And so it's easy to change your mind about donkey teeth because there's no emotions there. It's just kind of a good laugh. But if you press into a sensitive topic, it's threatening to your worldview. Your brain physically loses the ability to be rational and logical because it wants connection more than anything. So the more personal you get, the more difficult it is to not react emotionally. This is conflict. You begin to take it personally, get upset with other people. And we're seeing it all around because we live in this melting pot of cultures, hyper-connected, more and more so of our, uh, of our logical discussions are pressing up against things that matter personally to us and that makes them emotional and the truth is we can have logical discussions but only after we've dealt with our emotions regarding the topic and we can connect on a human level with a person that we disagree with so it kind of looks like this you're having a debate with your fox news watching uncle tim at thanksgiving your brain perceives Tim as a threat. Logical explanation cannot win him over. Have you seen this? He's too deep in his belief system. He is hopelessly lost. His perception about me uh, or about you and your belief system is the same. And at the core of this, both of you have the underlying pain regarding issues at hand. He's feeling lost because his government isn't what it used to be back when he had power in his beloved white America culture. And you're feeling lost because you're afraid for a future with mass murderers and a K-47s and white supremacists. Only if this could be a math problem that you and Uncle Tim could work out together on a whiteboard and come up with an answer to, it would be easy to not take it personally. But the answer to this math problem isn't actually what Uncle Tim thinks. It's that Uncle Tim and you are stuck in your emotions. Now, it's good to get emotional. It, it is a good thing, but logic can't solve the conflict because emotions are the conflict. Not that they cause the conflict, emotions are the conflict. Uncle Tim feels one way and you feel another and you're paired together in the same environment presented with the same evidence and it seems like you can't both be human in that same planet. 
and your logic breaks down because your number one need is safety of connection and you have this visceral emotional reaction when somebody else's worldview is different. This is tribal behavior that for thousands of years helped us recognize and sort who was a physical danger to us. But now we have to live with those people and we're going to need to evolve to a higher consciousness level to live in peace. And this is one that includes introspection and emotional intelligence. Now, you have three sections of your brain, your brain stem, your limbic system, and your cerebral cortex. And your limbic system is hidden in the middle. It's the seat of your emotions. And then at the top in your cerebral cortex is divided into the left and right. And your emotions are most closely connected with the right side of you. Unfortunately, the main channels that we have to communicate to other humans with uh, is with words. And that comes through our left hemisphere, which means that our left must communicate well with our right self in order to know what's really going on in our emotions and if your left and your right aren't communicating well and you're in a standoff then you aren't able to clearly vocalize why you're upset it compounds the problems you might accuse the other person of the problem being with them because you don't communicate well with yourself and they'll get defensive and they will accuse you in return. So when you have a conflict, it's not only an outer conflict between you and someone else. The same conflict is also simultaneously happening as an inner conflict of trying to figure out how you feel. Because your limbic system, your emotional memory bank is doing the feeling and your right hemisphere feels it the most. And that person you're arguing with, your friend, family member, least favorite politician, your arch enemy, they're feeling something different in their right hemisphere and then they're communicating it when they're left and it's like those feelings our deepest selves are hiding across battlefields from one another and we're in separate trenches across the battlefield and the only delegate we can send out to do the negotiation with words is the two people on your half on, on behalf of our brains that can speak our logic driven left hemispheres now it's kind of like this pretend like all of the people in the battlefield trenches are women owned both sides and the only delegate who can walk out and speak on behalf of each tribe is male ladies how frustrating would that be to have to send out a man to speak on behalf of all of the women on your side you're rolling your eyes like oh my gosh i know he's gonna screw that up but this is our brain trying to communicate to another human that we don't know and trust yet and the male or the left half of the brain goes out to say some words and it's like really woefully inadequate alright but, but the left hemisphere has a job he has to see if they are our enemy or our friend now think about the poor man that left hemisphere who's walking out to be the delegate to communicate between you and a perceived enemy this is your your logic in your speech now if you're the left hemisphere, all you know is that you are there to protect your tribe, yourself. Like your wife's back there. You love her. She's your number one concern. So I said earlier that it's good to be emotional conflict. That means that you're human. It's good to want to protect what's going on, to protect your own. That left hemisphere loves your right one and is loyal to it, which is a virtue left you wants to connect with them but your first duty as a loyal hemisphere is to connect with yourself because the two yous in your head are disconnected or fighting if that happens then you go insane so the job of left you is to always side with the one he loves see our, our brains are romantic um, so it, it except for this one minor set if you are mean to other people in your words that's how mean you are to yourself 
However you speak to others is typically how you speak to yourself. So if you, man or woman, if you have a vocal side of you that's abusing the uh, other people, it's going to speak abusively to yourself. So how you treat others is how you treat yourself. And it's handy to know that when somebody gets snippy with you, that's just an outward expression that they're a snippy person who gets snippy with themselves and they have some inner conflict going on. Now here's the deal. We don't need to fix all of that. All we need to do is teach the bumbling idiot of a delegate your left brain how to speak the language of those in the trenches how to speak the language of his people which is your right brain or your emotions because here's the thing if those two left hemisphere dudes the delegates out there on the battlefield can accurately describe what the people in their trenches need they'll actually find out that they all want the same thing like that other person you're arguing with deep down inside wants the same thing you do. Oh, you want safety? Us too. I mean, so you mean we actually don't have to use those weapons? You mean we can put those down? Awesome, that's what we wanted. We, we don't really want to fight. Maybe we could just uh, help keep each other safe. You, you want to make sure that your people have enough food that you're provided for and you have your needs met? Oh, well, us too. That's actually what we wanted. We like to eat. Maybe we could help each other get that. Maybe we could cooperate instead of competing. See, whenever you really find out what's going on inside of all of us, deep down inside, we all need the same things. And all kinds of walls can fall down when we find out that the other person is just as human as we are. See, wouldn't fighting be so dumb and such a waste of energy if instead we could spend that energy working together? But we have to teach our speaking side of us how to speak the language of our feelings, which are deeper within us. And we can't expect that other people know. So let's do that. Now, for the rest of the podcast, I want to give you a really basic layout on how to speak your feelings. And I'm going to go, uh, I went a little more in depth in this in season one, episode three is called Emotions, so you might want to check that out if you haven't. Uh, so let's get to know our feelings, okay? You have four, sort of. They're red, uh, or yellow, red, green, and blue. I like to say happy, angry, sad, and afraid, or I'll say glad, mad, sad, and scared. You'll hear other people say different numbers of emotions, but the latest and best I can find out is, is that they've reduced them down to four irreducible emotions, and this works for me. Uh, if we want to speak our our feelings first we have to feel our feelings and know which one of those four we are we have to identify them and this is not natural for everybody nor is it always easy so like sounds kind of dumb but like whenever you're riled up don't you know it gets confusing like what am I you can be so sad that you have no idea what you are you just know that it's not good whatever's going on whatever this funk is in my head is is not good so to feel your feelings in order to be able to identify them and name them you actually have to feel safe first uh, you, you physically cannot think logically to analyze your own feelings if you don't feel safe because your cerebral cortex shuts down whenever you go into fight or flight. You can't do it. That's not going to happen in the middle of a tense conversation with an enemy. This is a practice learned skill that takes time and a ton of energy. Because you may be rerouting old neural circuits in this process in your brain for the first time in decades if you haven't spoken your emotions. Which is really awesome when you think about it. We are using our brain to fix our own brain or to make it work more effectively. It may take years and years and tons of brain work. you got no better time to start than now. 
and it has to start in a safe place. So whenever you're alone, maybe right now, think about the person that you were in your last conflict with and go back there. Like the last time that you just lost it with somebody. See, like you may lose it at the time and you're like, I had no idea what I was feeling at the time. I was just like irate. So go back there. How did that argument go? Like at what point did, what thing did they say that really just tipped you off and you were like, okay, that's it, I'm done. Now dwell there. See, you can do this retroactively. Like whenever you get done and you're like, man, I totally messed that one up. You can go back and say, okay, but why did I mess it up? Like why would their saying that thing upset you? Okay, now a couple of tips here. Remember that if you're upset, there's only two things it can be. I said there's four emotions, right? So one of them is happy. So if you're not happy, you're either mad, sad, or scared. But anger is a secondary emotion. It's a popular emotion to name because it looks cool and it doesn't make you look weak, but it's fake. You, you really do feel it because there's some ancient circuits in our brain that kick on when we're intensely sad or afraid, but it's still a cover-up for our intense sadness or fear. So anybody who's angry is putting on this evolutionary show of dominance or power. They're really either sad, stuck in what happened in the past, or they're afraid, stuck in what might happen in the future. So the last time somebody said that thing and it just got you, what got you? Were, were you sad because they didn't recognize the hard work that you've done? Uh, were you afraid that they might leave you? Were you sad that your relationship has grown so far apart? And this is just another piece of evidence of the disconnect that's taking place. Were, were you afraid that they might share that secret and cause social isolation or shaming in your community? Were you jealous? Jealousy is like sadness of being excluded or forgotten while somebody else is being included and remembered and propped up and empowered. What feeling did you have? Sometimes our emotions compound because your emotional memory is very, very good and we keep track of people in their past. Like you can remember intense sadness or fear from past events long after you've forgotten the details. So uh, were you sad that they included, that they excluded you from that thing a long time ago and that really hurt and now years later they're reawakening that feeling buried in your emotional memory just by the way they keep ignoring you and what you're saying? So like there's this minor event of you're, you're being ignored in this meeting, but it really goes all the way back to that one time whenever they laughed at you and abandoned you in front of everyone. What are you feeling and where might it be coming from? Now you need calm and peace and safety to identify your emotions the first time or whenever you're not really practicing it. And so here's the cool thing. The more you identify them, the more you actually build the circuitry to identify them even when you are less calm. The more you can put words to them even when you aren't calm. But if you don't do this, in our Western culture we don't, uh, it's going to take a lot of practice. The more you can identify them in the moment, the less power they have because you can name them and you can speak them and that's the moment when they start to lose their control over you and you can control your emotions rather than your emotions controlling you and the less power they have the less they control you and the more you can be in the moment without losing control of yourself and the more you can speak words of feelings as you need to more or less on a whim 
Now it's going to feel weird. If you are not used to speaking your emotions, it'll feel weird because you'll feel vulnerable. And it'll feel weird because you're working a muscle that you may have never worked. You may have even thought about your emotions, but they haven't actually come out of your mouth. It may be a very difficult thing, and you may be overwhelmed. So start with the easy one if you have to. Say, I'm mad, okay, if that's it. I'm mad. Just say those two words. That's a great first step. You are owning it then. That starts the path. I'm mad. Now, Later, whenever you get up to like, you know, platinum level emotions identifier, then probe to the next step. Okay, what's underneath that? And then work on bringing that out in a conflict. I'm really sad. It's really difficult to go into a moment of true anger all the way down to the root. So sometimes you just need to stick with, I'm mad about this. I'm, I feel mad when this happens, okay? And that's a very descriptive, non-accusatory way of saying what's going on. You're not batting it off on them. You're not blaming them. You're just owning it right there and saying the facts. I'm mad when this happens. Um, you're probably not going to fly off the hook right out the bat and just say, you know, I'm really, really sad. But you got to know that that's actually what you need to get to is whenever you're sad or you're afraid. In due time, you will get calmer as you learn to speak them more clearly and more openly, which is where we want to be. So you send your left hemisphere delegate out on the battlefield, and he's talking with the other person's left, and he feels awkward, but he says that um, our troops are really sad. We're, we're sad that you missed Thanksgiving dinner the past five years and you didn't give us very good reasons. And that's actually whenever the other person and their delegate can actually not be defensive and can start to cooperate. Okay. Now, I know Braveheart wouldn't have been as epic had William Wallace walked out on the battlefield and said, I'm sad, but I get, you know, I get it. William Wallace was beheaded, okay? And the Scotland still are not independent. So let's go ahead and move humanity forward. Let's tell the person in the conflict what we're feeling. It's called vulnerability because there's no guarantee that they're going to reciprocate it, but only a trust that they're human too. You know, everything that Brene Brown's work is built on, this is it. It's vulnerability. It's what leaders and strong people do. They step first. Who goes first? The person who thinks they're the most mature should go first. If you are blaming your spouse and you're going back and forth and you're like, well, they need to own this before I own this. Okay, who's more mature? You or they are. If you want to be more mature, go first. Quit waiting on your boss. Quit waiting on your mother-in-law. If you think that you are mature, then prove it by being vulnerable first. Um, if you can do this, and you can be in control of yourself, it shows that you are actually the strong person. See, I don't get all emotional and upset and worry if a toddler is mad at me, right? Because I'm not threatened by a toddler. You only get reactive whenever you're threatened. That's why the calmest people in the room always are the ones with the most power. They are displaying their strength by their calmness. They have their entire cerebral cortex up and fully running to work with. And you can walk into a restaurant and see a toddler dropping a spoon over and over and over again and the parents are getting upset and the toddler's laughing, not phased. You ever seen this, right? Parent is losing it. Kid is not. Guess who's winning that battle? A two-year-old with his full cerebral cortex online in action, outwitting some angry, frustrated 30-year-old who has graduated from college. 
So like you're getting bent out of shape is not helping. It's compounding both your ability to reason and theirs. So the first step that you take is by owning your own self and working to be calm and identifying your feelings and being comfortable with them in the moment. You can still feel them and then verbalize them and they start to lose control over you and that's when that calmness and control kicks in. Now that's you and that's where you start because we can only control ourselves and there's a great level of trust here in being vulnerable with other people you actually can control other people too to an extent and and here's what i mean by this what about with others okay so you can disarm other people if you can't force them to come out obviously and and confess what's going on but there are ways that will lead them there very quickly and then there are ways that will not work um, so whenever somebody is upset with you and you're not upset back with them or what about when two kids are fighting and you need to stand in between or two employees of yours are dickering over something silly and you've got to be the go-between and you're not upset or what about whenever your husband and your mother are going at it now when somebody's upset and it's not you and you're not ba mad back at them how do you get other people where you're at we can actually do that. Where do we start? Well, we start where I just left off. We have to go first. We've got to be calm. So whether you're a mediator or whether that person's mad at you, if you will enter with calmness, like you're not going to go out on the battlefield all riled up while somebody else is nervous. You're not going to go out there and be shaking things around and yelling at your little tribal war hymn or whatever, and then they're going to actually react positively. You got to walk calm onto the battlefield. Okay. My dad taught me this. He's like an expert dog whisperer. Hey, dad. Um, he, he, he didn't have his own dog whispering show, but we spent a lot of time in the country and it was not uncommon that dogs would run out and sometimes these big, ugly, mean ones that are growling and stuff. And dad taught me by his demeanor and example. He didn't know he was teaching me this, but I have seen this guy talk down so many, so many dogs and he was, he would not react because you know, the worst thing you can do is run away from a dog or a human if they're mad at you. So what he would do is he would square his shoulders up and he would talk very calm and gently and he would even squat down and get on the level with the dog and he would talk to the dog almost like the dog was a baby and I saw like Rottweilers and all kinds of dogs uh, just kind of like you know kind of hunker down and then they would go from so so angry to being so calm and actually being able to let us pet them in just a few minutes time when we thought that there was no way we we're going to get out of this attack and this is true of dogs and us we actually have the same neural circuitry as dogs except for we have a whole lot of cerebral material on top of all of what dogs have um, so anyways I, you start with being calm yourself and then you have to identify your own feelings because you can't disarm anyone else until you're calm yourself and so what's happening is a two-way exchange here even if the other people that are upset are uh, are angry 
we have to go in and we have to de-escalate them. We call it regulation, de-escalation, de-escalation. But you can't de-escalate somebody if they're escalated higher than you are. You can only bring them in the emotional direction you are. There's almost like this amazing spiritual, miraculous, whatever you want to call it, attachment between us. Okay. And so this is why we're the first ones to go to be calm always. And then we have a chance of bringing people to peace. Um, so at school, it looks like this. Um, kids would be mad and they would fight each other. And I would have to investigate and ask what happened. And so nine times out of 10 or more, uh, if I say to a kid at school who got in some sort of conflict, okay, what happened? The immediate response is going to be, well, he did this, she did this. And I would usually, I got to where I didn't even listen to the whole sentence, which is probably tacky, but I would cut them off and say, okay, I don't care what he or she did. I want to know what did you do? And then eventually they might say, okay, well, I called him a name. Okay, but he hit me, you know, and they want to focus on them and say, no, 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 no. What did you do? And then that starts to bring it down to ownership. So we start with the actions. What actually happened? What were the facts that went on here? Now, you don't need to investigate all of the facts because that's not really important. But that just got me to a closer step to what actually happened. Okay, so why did you do that? Well, because he did blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, hold on a second. Why did you do that, though? Just because he did this. Well, he said this about my mom. Okay, now we're getting somewhere because now I can ask, here's the real question. And how did you feel when he said that? Well, I was mad. Okay, and so I was mad, and so I pushed him back. And so at this point, the kids will start to de-escalate because... They're starting to get the word out. I was mad. And then we can explore their madness. Okay, you were mad because he said that about your mama, okay? And so uh, you, you felt mad. Now, the funny thing is I would – a lot of times I would just do this little bait and switch, and the kids would never catch it because it was totally natural. They wouldn't say anything. They would say they were mad, and I would act like they hadn't even said the word mad, and I would, I would just move on to the next point, and I would say, oh, okay, so you were sad whenever they said that about your mom. Right? And, and they wouldn't correct me unless I actually happened to be wrong about their emotion. And they were like, no, 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 I wasn't sad. Because kids intuitively know that their madness or anger is a result of sadness or fear. And so a lot of, a lot of males especially will not self-confess fear. And so a lot of times if I'm not sure why they're upset, I would start with that one. And I would say, okay, so I, I can tell that you're scared. Okay, Or um, if they were... Uh, upset visibly in their crying, I would say, just say, what are you sad about? And they would tell me. But until you get to the feeling, you can't resolve the issue or the conflict. All right. Now, life's too short to get to the very bottom of every feeling. Sometimes we just have to say, okay, you're mad because of this. Let's take a suck it up pill and move on. <laughs> but you better not brush over a continual cyclical problem of people being upset. Or, or you better not brush over something when people get upset in a really serious way, even if they're not acting out at the time when you know that it's a really serious issue that really hurt them. You need to get to the bottom of it because there are so many pe people out there with suppressed feelings that are wrecking them inside. And so here's the thing. When you have that conflict and you get someone to self-confess, whether it's two people mad at each other or somebody that's mad at you, they can self-confess and you can finally figure out what's going on in their feelings. You can meet them there. And then that's it. They need to say the words and then their conflict 
starts to de-escalate and then things start to get better and healing starts to take place. We don't need to solve it. We don't need to like walk through everybody through and make sure everybody has justice on all, every single point. We just need to know that somebody felt sad. We don't have to be 100% fair about everything. We need to know why are you upset and let's meet you there and let's see if you have uh, some way that I can feel it along with you. Um, you, you need to let them vocalize it and not yourself because that's not helping them. You may know that somebody's sad. You may know exactly what they're sad about. You may know the whole story behind it. You may know all of their history. But until they vocalize it and they know that they've said it to you and that you have heard them, they're still going to be stuck in their emotions. All right. And so uh, if you're continually running into this over and over again where somebody's avoiding their feelings or doesn't know how to express their feelings, help them take the first step. It may be a spouse who is an, an adult. It may be a, a boss who is 70 years old, but maybe they're not used to this and you can actually take the step for them. You can ask them what's going on and if they won't tell you their feelings or they won't get to it, you can say, well, you seem sad or you seem upset or you seem afraid of this. Is that true? And you can ask them a question. If you know them really well, you may even just name it for them. And I've done this with kids at school a lot of times when I say, oh, I see you're, you're sad. And they, they, the funny thing is, is people will always correct you if you name the wrong feeling. Um, and so you just name a feeling sometimes and it will help people get there. Um, you don't have to be some emotional expert or brain scientist to know that this can help people every day. So uh, you know those charts that I told you with, uh, that I told you about that I came up with earlier? I had four different color charts in my room. They were yellow, red, green, and blue. And I told the kids anytime they were in trouble, they would just say, they could say whatever was appropriate on those charts as long as one thing, they're honest. And it would start to get them out of trouble. So you know how this works with kids, and it works the same way with adults. So the kids on the playground at recess, they're in, uh, they're in a fight or whatever, and they come in, and then this happened, and then uh, the kid denies it. The kid argues with the teacher and justifies himself. The kid backs up into a defensive hall and says, no, it's his fault because he did this and he did this and he did this. And then you know where the kids end up? In the office. They end up in the office. And then if they start to yell at the people in the office, you know where they end up? ISS. And then if they yell at the people in ISS, you know where they end up? They end up over in alt school. Okay, it just, it just gets worse and compounds over and over and over again. But I tell you, the moment that it stops escalating is the moment that you just tell people you're feeling. And, and I would say, okay, so here's what the, the chart said. Like the yellow one would be like if you were in trouble because you were excited, because you were really happy. Well, the, the words on the chart said, I'm excited because blank. I'm having a hard time calming down because I keep thinking about blank. All right. The red chart, I'm angry because somebody blank. I feel mad because somebody blank. And so it was with the green and the blue. I feel sad because this happened. I feel scared because blank. And then they had to fill in the blank with what actually happened. All right. So like um, if we're in trouble at school, it's because we didn't express our emotions properly. I mean, that's what getting in trouble is for. Somebody violated a boundary. Somebody got upset and didn't connect it. So it could have been the adult, another student who is in trouble or whatever. The funny thing about this is how easy te teachers are to manipulate by just saying a simple sentence because that actually turns the escalation down into de-escalation. But if it's true, isn't that what we're going for? Because when somebody self-confesses their emotions, 
they're owning what's going on and what's wrong. And, and uh, you know, what teacher do you know if a kid punches another kid in the face is going to continue to get more and more severe after the kid says, I punched him because I was mad and he called my mama a name. Self-confession is when humans start to naturally bring everything back together because we are reconnecting people and feelings. And that's what our entire sense of justice is built on. It's where rules come from. It's where the concept of respect comes from. Empathy. Feeling what other people are feeling. Now, once people self-confess their emotions... Um, if it's two people that are arguing that's not us, we try to connect them with the perpetrator who upset them by showing the perpetrator how he feels sad because you did this. Do you understand why he felt sad? And I can't connect them back together um, if one person is being stubborn and refusing. I can at least connect myself with the upset student by saying, you know, I feel really sad when that same thing happened to me last time. Now, last thing I said, the uh, last thing is this. What about if somebody is upset with you and it's just kind of a one-way thing? Find out their story and meet them there. Listen to what happened. Listen to the context. And this is not rocket science. Find out what their emotions are and get to this. Here's the, here's the nugget right here. Are they sad or scared? And this is so crucial. You have to have so much margin that you can get to that point and it may take days it may even take months may take years are you sad about this or are you scared about this what are you sad or scared about you have to feel it with them and if you're not feeling it then you're not listening because this is what it means to be human to listen and love and feel somebody else's pain and loss and to sit with them in it so your boss is upset because that report isn't done. And you're like, why are they getting so upset about this silly thing? This is blah, 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 blah. What does getting defensive do? It only isolates you. If all you're doing is explaining to your boss why you're justified, do you know how old that gets to your boss? It, it, you're asking them to meet you where you are. It, this is why it's important to have margin, by the way. If, if they're upset... The only way you're going to expect to help them or to fix it is by putting yourself in their position and asking them to share with you what's that like trying to get all this done and you have only this one report missing. I bet that's frustrating. But then actually do the report, of course, and apologize in a sense that you show them that you understand their story and where they're coming from and you know how frustrating that was. If you treat your boss like that, your boss will probably kiss you. Almost every time I've ever said uh, something to my boss where they recognize that I understood the shoes they were in, it's almost like something comes alive and they're like, oh my goodness, one of my employees actually thought about where I was coming from and my needs. But your spouse, the same thing. Like, what's your wife feeling? If you're a husband, your job is to question and listen and get inside of her story and continue to ask questions and yes don't fix it women's circuitry is a lot more complex than ours and so a lot of times it takes her a longer time to sort through all of her feelings because there are so many and she can eventually do it if there's a calm and secure and safe place and she has a partner to help her work out her feelings and you can be help 
for that, but do not come up with an answer for her because she is not dumb and she will be able to explain her own feelings in her own time. And she may overload you, right? You need margin, don't you? And then all you have to do is listen and meet her there. Oh, wow. I bet it did feel that way. And here's the thing. You can't fake this. Actually do the hard work of getting there with her by listening to her story. Get sad with her. It's called empathy, and it's what makes us great as a species. It's how we build a great world. And you ever notice why, like, it's so frustrating if you're stuck in one emotion and somebody else isn't feeling it with you, and or if somebody else is feeling something different, you're you're afraid, and somebody else is like stuck in the past. You're like you're you're trying to control the future over here, and then somebody else is just like totally living in the past, and they're not even close to being with you. That can be frustrating, but the worst maybe, like um, whenever you're stuck in sadness. And somebody else is all worried about everything else that's going on way ahead of you. Like, uh, my son had some medical issues uh, recently, and I've been really sad about it. And all you need to do to be helpful to me in that sadness is just to be sad with me and be like, I understand, or or even just, oh, that's that's bad, and, and I'm with you right there. But sometimes people will probe, and they'll ask all these detailed questions, and it becomes obvious that they're just afraid because it's a medical thing and they're like, oh, what could, can, could that happen to me? And they ask all these questions to feed their own fear. Like, it only furthers the distance. Cancer patients, anybody? Like, sometimes, um, like, someone's all concerned with, like, what you did or your habits that caused this and you can just tell that they're getting scared and you're like, whoa, hold on. I'm really sad right now. It is not helpful whatsoever to use this to feed your fear. Isn't that frustrating? And you can smell that fear a mile away, can't you? And you're like, somebody else is using my story to prop up some sort of issue that they have is one of the worst things that we can do. It's whenever we're not sitting in somebody's sadness or fear with them. This is all about meeting people where they are. Step one, identify the feeling. Step two, go there. It's what all the great human stories are built on. It's, it's one reason why the Christian story that I'm a part of has had so much power through the ages. It's a story of humans being stuck in their mess and someone identified it and saw them and went there. We call it the incarnation. You identify where people are and then you show up. Now, this is a culture that's begging for your attention. And the gift of your presence, the gift of your emotional presence and listening can literally be a life and death difference. So let me close with this. Um, if you're stuck in cycles right now, uh, where do you start? Like, how do I even get there? Well, uh, how, how do I even get to like where we can even start to have a conversation about emotions because we're just stuck on the surface level? Well, here's, here's where you're going to start. Always start with yourself. It's the only person that you have really full control over. I start with myself, and that means I start with transparency, specifically emotional transparency. 
okay but transparency about the facts as well okay if you're stuck on the surface level start with surface level facts transparency will usually lead you to natural healing and you will naturally know the next steps whenever you're transparent because things just happen they fall into place and they work and we have a, a culture and a, a world that we're living in where we feel like we can't be transparent because it's not safe but I'm telling you transparency will work miracles in your life and you may be like well I'll lose my job if I am 100% transparent you might but it is a whole lot better than living a lie okay you're like I might actually lose my relationship with my wife you might but it's actually going to be a whole lot worse if you continue to live out a lie so be transparent about facts and then you can say it without justifying it that's whenever you say I just did this <laughs> you can say it without accusing I did this because of so-and-so or this happened just state the facts you know this happened I did this um, it, uh, the worst thing that happened was this right here. Uh, Maybe hard facts that you think is going to destroy your relationship, but the longer uh, you hide them, the worse it's going to be for the other person to accept. People will accept cheating. People have accepted manipulation. People have accepted abuse, but almost nobody can accept somebody who's been living a lie. If you're living a lie, stop. If you've been avoiding talking about something that needs to get out in the open, stop. Get transparent 100% of all of yourself with the people closest to you so that you're not hiding or sweeping away anything with them. And then get transparent about your emotions uh, because it's not healthy for you to live out a lie. And if you're not transparent about your own emotions, nothing else can move forward. Um, it's like shining a light with with what's really going on and when you shine a light on who somebody really is and what their story really is and what's actually happening and going on deep down inside of them then pretty much everybody I know can figure out where the road leads but if the road's covered up if it's buried or if it's in the dark everybody's gonna continue to search and yell out obscenities in the dark that same light that illuminates the road for you is also going to illuminate somebody else's heart so whenever you expose your own emotions, it actually puts the onus on other people to start exposing theirs without coercion, without you expecting it, without you forcing it upon them. It's just the natural ambient light of you shining light on your own emotions is actually going to lighten, light up other people's inner selves whenever you walk out onto the battlefield and you say you know what we need this and you know they might kill you but you take that risk and you sacrifice anyways then that's going to lead to peace and it's the only thing that can lead to peace name the facts identify them uh, give up the margin that it takes to meet people there and whenever you meet them on the battlefield you take the first step of vulnerability and you'd be amazed at how quickly you can be the force in the world that inspires everyone to lay their weapons down and you might actually start that reciprocal relationship of escalating love that's going to draw you and the person back together to remember what you liked about each other so much in the first place and I think from that we can start to heal our families and we can start to heal the world.